If you guys would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And we will be picking up this week in verse 43 of Luke chapter 6. Once you have found those verses in your Bible, uh, would you please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word? Luke chapter 6, verse 43, hear the words of the Lord. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is the word of the Lord. You guys be seated. Luke chapter 6, we have been slowly and steadily making our way through chapter 6 of Luke. And here this week, we find ourselves in verse 43, 44, and 45, uh, which really is extending an argument that we've been developing for some verses now in Luke chapter 6. The title for this study, just so you can have that in front of you as a, as a focal point, is called The Duck Test. The Duck Test. And for those of you who know what the duck test is, uh, this might be something that you are picking up on as we go through it. The duck test is this. Uh, you might have heard this reasoning said before. If it walks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it swims like a duck, and it looks like a duck, most likely what you're looking at is a duck. It's a form of reasoning that takes imperfect pictures of information, imperfect ways of understanding what we see, and then making a generalization, and usually a very good generalization about what you're looking at. And in these verses, what you have is the spiritual life duck test. You have an incomplete picture of someone's internal disposition, but nevertheless a very good picture of what they are at their core. If they look like a Christian, if they talk like a Christian, if they walk like a Christian, if they bear fruit like a Christian, you can reasonably conclude that they are in fact a Christian. But if they don't look like a Christian, if they don't talk like a Christian, if they don't bear fruit that is good and loving and kind, then the reasonable conclusion would be that they are in fact not a Christian. The way that Jesus sets this test before his disciples is by giving them the picture of a tree that bears fruit. Now, it's worth saying that this test in particular is something that he's been advancing since he started his sermon. Since he's been preaching, he's given to us what it looks like for someone to be blessed, what it looks like for someone to be under woe and condemnation. And then he begins by turning to his disciples and saying to them, this is how you ought to love your enemies. This is how you ought to be if you're in the kingdom of God. He's setting forth what the fruit looks like. If you're in the kingdom, if you want to be under this blessed condition, how can you know if you're part of the kingdom or part of the world? If you're under blessing or if you're under judgment, how can you know? How can you be certain? There's other passages of scripture that give us pictures of fruit and what is the fruit that we can look to in our lives. You might be familiar with the fruit of the spirit, 
But I don't think we need to go that far beyond these verses to understand that Luke has already given us indications of what Christian fruit looks like. He's told us, for example, that a Christian fruit is someone who loves their enemies. We, d- we spent several weeks discussing the, the particulars of loving people who are hostile towards the Christian faith. He's given us, for example, that a Christian fruit is someone who is able to persevere and endure through suffering. Someone who bears shame for the name of Christ. That's an example of someone who's bearing fruit that is Christian. Someone who can endure through that kind of tribulation and trial. He's told us that if we are slow to judge and we are merciful in the same way that our Father is merciful, that it is a fruit that we bear that testifies to our internal condition. What's important about discussing this as fruits or discussing these things as tests of the internal condition is that we run the risk when we talk about good things that we can do as Christians, we run the risk of flipping the script and getting the order wrong. We run the risk of saying that if this fruit indicates salvation, indicates faith, then surely if I can produce this fruit, that is a sure sign that I have faith. Now hear me, it is a good sign that you have faith, but it's not necessarily a sure sign that you have faith. And here's why I say that. Because later on in Luke's gospel, Luke is going to talk about through, uh, he's going to articulate a time when Jesus talks to his disciples and he says that I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out as sheep in, in, in a world that's hostile against you. And that's a picture that gets developed. And then later in other writings in the New Testament, we see that actually it's possible for a wolf to bear sheep's clothing, to wear all the external signs and symbols of a believer, and yet themselves not be a believer. Those are, in in this context, false teachers, people who are trying to deceive those around them, and even in many cases deceiving themselves. So the the, the fruit test of the tree is a good test. It's a duck test but it's not an exclusively perfect test. It's like when you're reading the book of Proverbs and you come across good, practical, wise, prudent advice. If you are a sluggish person, you are likely to be poor. If you are a hardworking, diligent person, you are likely to build wealth for yourself. That is wisdom, but it's not exclusively true because all of us can think about examples and situations of people who are lazy but have wealth or people who work very hard day in and day out and do not accumulate for themselves wealth. So this is a proverbial kind of assessment. It's a very good assessment, but it's not an exclusively good assessment. It's not a perfect tell. It's about as good though on this side of eternity as we can get. It's about as good as we can get to discern in our own hearts and from the people that we associate with, whether or not that they are the kinds of people who are edifying us, building us up, or whether we ourselves are truly converted, or whether or not that these people are people we should not hear from, should not listen to. You remember that as Luke is advancing this this narrative, as he's choosing to arrange this sermon, one of the things he's been drawing attention to is this pattern of twos. So I didn't point this out last week, but last week we were introduced to, in verse 39, that there are two blind people, one blind person leading another blind person. And then we're taught about the teacher and his disciple. There's two people involved there, a teacher and the disciple, or as he plays off earlier, the danger that a blind person and they're leading than another blind person. And then he advances it further and he says, there's even a case of two brothers. We have one brother who has this difficulty discerning what is good and bad for the other one because he himself is blind 
to sin because he allows sin to exist in his own life. And then here, Luke is advancing it by saying that there's two kinds of trees. And then he's going to advance it further, and then he's going to expand that and say, not only are there two kinds of trees, there's two kinds of people. And so the idea that is being advanced has this flowing structure to it, has this very logical pattern. And the logic goes something like this. If someone teaches you who themselves is blind, you will be blind. Okay, how can I be sure that that is the case? How can I be sure that I'm not being misled or led astray? Well, pay attention. Pay attention to your own heart to make sure that you yourself are not unable to discern good and bad things. Take the log out of your own eye. And then the next thing right after that is pay attention to the kind of fruit that you bear and that the teachers who are discipling you bear. Because if you are being discipled by someone who is, is themselves bearing a certain kind of fruit, you can be very sure that you are being discipled into bearing that same kind of fruit. The warning is don't be judgmental or critical. And how you know you're not going to be someone who's discipled, discipled into that is you're going to pick teachers around you and be discipled by people who themselves are not judgmental or critical. That's the kind of logic that's being laid forth in this text. The emphasis, though, in these verses, uh, the, the bearing of fruit, is specifically on the internal examination of every Christian. That's where the emphasis lands. But the extension of that information is to even examining the fruit in other people's lives as well. Those who are discipling us, those who we are in fellowship with and in relationship with. So this has more than one application point in which it lands. And again, you're applying the same test to all. As we were taught earlier, you can't apply that test to someone else and not you. You have to apply it consistently first to yourself and then to other people. So what does this look like on the ground? Let's go ahead and move through these verses in order. Verse 43 introduces us to this idea that there's two kinds of trees. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Now what's being said there in those verses is a very broad statement about you can identify with great accuracy the kind of tree that you're looking at by the kind of fruit that it bears. A good way to phrase this is there's no beautiful, lovely, healthy tree that will produce for you rotten fruit. Rotten fruit just doesn't come out of healthy trees. And the same is true if you flip the script. Rotten trees do not bear healthy fruit. So if you can't hack the tree apart and figure out its core contents, if you can't run a DNA test on that tree, how can you tell what kind of tree it is? How can you know whether this tree is rotten on the inside or not? How do you know? The sure test, in this case the good test, is to look at what kind of fruit comes out of it. Healthy trees bear healthy fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees don't bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. Pretty straightforward logic from our Lord. And that is helpful for us because you'll even notice that he emphatically puts the kind of tree first before the kind of fruit that it produces. You'll notice he doesn't say good fruit is produced by good trees. He doesn't emphasize the fruit itself. He says that good trees he says, no good trees bear bad fruit. What he's putting in, into the front and fixture of your mind is that it is the nature of the tree, the kind of tree that you're looking at, that is an indication of the kind of fruit that it is going to bear. He's putting in front of it the nature of the tree. And I think that's important for us to understand because, again, we don't want to flip the script and say that the fruit is the ultimate determiner and, and pursue the fruit as if that somehow by pursuing the fruit we can flip the nature of the tree. That's the danger in these verses. When I was a, 
a science teacher, uh, one of the most difficult things to establish to a young mind is the nature of a causal relationship. It's one of the first things you have to learn about in science class. You might have learned this when you were in high school about the difference between an independent and a dependent variable, that there's one variable that influences another variable. And you can get very confused about the kind of results you get from science if you can't distinguish between the variable that causes the effect and the variable that is produced as a result of the causing agent. In these verses, we, we, if we confuse it, we'll get it wrong. If we say that fruit and health of the tree are correlated, but that the fruit drives the health of the tree, we're getting it wrong. We're flipping the script. We're getting the causation wrong. The fruit does not drive the health of the tree. The health of the tree drives the production of fruit. The health of the tree drives and influences what kind of fruit is born out of the tree. We know this because as the logic is advanced in these verses, he says that figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. It's not good enough to grab a thorn bush, hang a bunch of figs on it, and call it a fig tree. It doesn't work. The fruit is a good indicator, but the fruit is not an exclusive indicator. The nature of the tree is what you're trying to understand. The nature of the tree produces a certain kind of fruit naturally, by nature. Same thing, you can't pick grapes from bramble bushes. Same idea. If you take grapes and you hang them over a bramble bush, doesn't make it a grapevine. It's a very simple way to understand these things, but I think we get very confused and very, uh, very, it's very hard for us to put this kind of stuff on the ground because as Christians, we're, we're so quick to think of counterexamples and, and things in which we can say, well, I know a person who's unconverted, but they bear a certain kind of good fruit in their life. Or I know someone who's not a believer, does not profess Christ, but lives in a certain kind of way that looks very Christian to me. What do we do in those cases? That's not quite as simple, right, as fruit and trees and the bearing of those things? Well, not necessarily. I think it can, in some cases, be just that simple. Because what we're looking at, again, is the general pattern of fruit born in the life of the tree, or in this case, the life of the Christian. And we have to be very specific about what that kind of fruit is. We can't just say anything that we deem as good is good fruit. Good in scripture has both a general sense and it has also an ultimate sense. It has the, you can say that someone is good, but then also in the Psalms, we're told in Psalm 53 that there's no one who's good. So which is it? Are there good people or are there no good people? Well, it depends on what kind of good we're talking about. The definition of good is very important. Same thing here. We're talking about good fruit and good trees. Are we talking about good in an ultimate sense? Or are we talking about good in a relative to us kind of sense? I would submit to you that if we think about good in a relative sense is where we get all the confusion from whether someone who's not a Christian can bear good fruit. That's where we get the confusion because we look at someone living their life in a way that we approve of or in a way that we think is charitable, healthy, they're kind to other people. And we look at all that fruit and we say, that's good compared to us. That's good compared to the world standard. So that must be a good person, a, a converted person, even if they don't profess Christ. But I think we have to take these, these fruit that is being born in an ultimate kind of sense, in a sense that God would define good. So what is the standard for good fruit according to God? What is that standard of fruit bearing? It's not just being nicer to other people. That's not the standard. Well, the standard has first and foremost been laid out for us in, in these verses. We're told that someone has to be able to love their enemy. That's a good indication of the kind of fruit that you bear. It says that the world can love people who loves them, 
But Christians are different in that they can love people who are unkind and even hostile towards them. That's a very good way to understand whether it's a godly fruit or a generally positive kind of fruit. Good in an ultimate sense would be someone who can love their enemy. Good in a general sense is someone who's just kind and loving and benevolent, right? There's a difference between those two kinds of fruits. But I think there's other kinds of fruits that scripture demands of us, and even those would be true earlier in Luke. For example, we can talk about the fruit of confession. And this, I think, is something that's often missed when we discuss someone who lives a good life in accordance with the faith, but they themselves do not profess faith. The profession of faith is a fruit. The profession of faith and the articulation of right doctrine and the uh, confessing of a correct kind of Christ and a correct belief about God, that's a kind of fruit. Because as Peter confesses the identity of Jesus, God says that that is an example of the Spirit working in his heart to reveal these things to him. Confession is a kind of fruit. These things are not discerned by logic or understanding. They're discerned by spiritual realities. And so when the Spirit reveals something to you and you can accurately confess the right kind of Christ, the true Jesus, a holy God, if you can confess those things, that's a kind of fruit. It's an example of the Spirit at work in your heart to reveal these things to you. To help you to understand why that's good news and not just true. To help you understand how that's lovely and not just what's recorded in Scripture. There's a difference between saying the right thing. Someone can make a false profession and not believe them themselves. But if you're looking at the fruit level, which is all we can do, generally speaking, if someone can confess accurately, that's a good indication of the kind of tree that they are, the kind of person that they are. Confession is one level. But confession isn't the ultimate kind of fruit that is born. Confession is one of many fruits that we're looking for in someone's life. Confession, being able to love their enemies, if those, those are two very good indications of where someone's at, how they treat other people, and whether they confess the right things about God. But there's more than that. There's more than that in terms of fruit that you can bear. You can talk about the fruit of obedience. The fruit of obedience is looking at God's word and saying, I'm in submission to it, and I want to live my life in the kind of way that is in submission to and in adherence to God's word. Not out of shame, not out of a burden, not out of slavery, but out of love for the Father. That's a kind of fruit that you can look for in someone's life. If you encounter someone who regularly bumps into tough things in Scripture, and they say, I know what the text says, I'm wrestling through it, but I want to be in submission to whatever the text says, that's someone who's bearing a kind of fruit. They're articulating a kind of thing that they believe. They believe God is good. They believe he's revealed himself through his word. And they're trying to live that out as best as they can. Not perfectly, but as best they can. That's a kind of fruit. The obedience and the willing submission to God is a good indication of fruit. You can compare that, though, to someone who lives in a good kind of way, but doesn't really like all the things that God has to say. Those are two different, contrary messages, kinds of fruits. If we're looking at someone who is loving to their neighbor, they give a lot to charity, they're a generally kind and nice person, but they confess that they, they really hate this one thing about God. They don't like that he's so old school, he's so restrictive, he's so hard on certain legal kinds of things, that he, he has things to say about marriage and child rearing and, and how you live and how you conduct yourself. They don't like those things. That's someone who is bearing a fruit. They're confessing one thing and they're, they're living one thing, but they're also bearing a kind of fruit that gives you some concern that they're not living in obedience. And that, that should give you an indication of what's actually going on on the inside. Remember, we're working from, we're working from what we can see at a human level. Not, we can't look into someone's heart. God is not limited to the fruit that we bear. He can see right through all of that. That's why false teachers get captured on Judgment Day. That's why they don't make it through that level of sifting. But in our churches, in our lifetime, we have, we have actually a problem with 
having a really hard time sifting good and false teachers. We actually can let them get away for even their whole lives before they're found out for what they really are. That's, that's a common experience even in the church today. That's not a good thing. We should be very vigilant about the kind of holiness that we demand from people. But it, it proves to us that fruit isn't the ultimate level of discernment. It's not the ultimate test that we can hold someone to. But for our own lives, for our own, uh, for our own living, for our own uh, holiness, this fruit test is very good. Because when you apply it to other people, you realize there's quick limitations on what we can and cannot discern from other people. They're good, but they're not perfect. But when you apply this to your own heart, you realize how much better the test gets. Because you know things about yourself that you don't know a lot of times about other people. A lot of times with other people, you're examining their actions, sometimes what they say in public spaces, maybe sometimes what they say to you in private. But at the end of the day, you're not inside their head. You don't know what they're thinking, what their thought life is like. But chances are you know a good deal about that, about yourself. And the thought life is a good indication of what you value. It's a good fruit test. If you're asking yourself, am I a disciple of Jesus? Do I love the Lord? Take inventory of your thinking. It's a kind of fruit that you can examine in yourself. Where, what are the things your heart jumps after and longs for, as opposed to what are the kinds of things you actually do? Because those can sometimes be different, depending on how disciplined and how religious you are in your upbringing. You can be very disciplined and let your heart wander in all kinds of different places. It might be an indication that you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, that you're not being obedient to this kind of standard. Now, again, those are things that other people might not be able to see about you, but that's a test that we're even as disciples called to subject ourselves to. Lest we be like the person who calls out his brother for the speck in his eye, but has a log present the whole time. Remember this flow of consistent thought in the text. We want to examine ourselves first before we start keeping any kind of burden or test on somebody else. So we're called to examine ourselves because the, the reason the fruit test is so important, the reason looking at someone's life and the fruit that they bear is so important and looking at our own hearts is because the fruit gives us an indication as to what's actually going on on the inside. The fruit gives us a very good indication of that truth. Now, what I, I, you'll notice the logic in the text that he says, no good tree bears bad fruit. And what that tells us is if we look at the fruit, we're not actually looking at the fruit. What we're looking at is the internal reality. When we're looking at what's produced, we're looking at the internal problem or the internal ben, uh, blessing that's going on. We're looking down to the core. It's as good as we can get. And so when we're looking at our own fruit, the reason we should be so vigilant about it is because it tells us something about our actual nature, about our actual reality. It's not just telling us about how we are. It's telling us about who we are. It's telling us about whose we are. It's telling us things about ourselves that we might otherwise lie to ourselves about. And that's, I think, a very revealing thing many times in our life. Scripture has many kinds of things that it tells us about uh, the people who are with God and who are disciples of God. Many of those things have to do with right doctrine, right teaching, loving other people. But even more of those things have to do with the kinds of things that we desire and that we want. The, the kind of person that we are and our nature is something we can't really submit uh, to external discipline. We can't submit our will to discipline of the body. Our will is something that wanders around wildly often. And so testing what our will is doing, what it longs for, what it desires, is a great way of seeing what's actually going on beyond what you can discipline yourself into. Remember, the Pharisees are way better than us at disciplining themselves. They're way better at producing this kind of works-based fruit that would be very good for a disciple of Jesus, but it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. 
And you'll notice that as the argument gets advanced even further in verse 45, he takes it one step further that if you want to look at fruit, if you want to see where to look for fruit on the tree, look at what someone says. Look at the things that come out of their mouth. He says that the good person, out of the good treasure in his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, the reason we're concerned with what people say and what they confess with their mouth is not because we're actually concerned about what they say. We're concerned about what they say tells us about their internal treasure, their internal reality. Uh, When we're examining what someone says, we're getting to the core of what they believe, the core of what they think. The mouth is so difficult to keep hold of. You might be able to discipline your body and you might find a great deal of trouble disciplining your tongue. And that's not unique to you, that's unique to everyone who's a human, it's human nature. So it's it's not a unique characteristic. Every single sinner has a difficult time keeping control of their tongue. That's just because the tongue, as James says, is something that almost no one can master. Beasts can be mastered, we can master the oceans, we can get to the moon, we can do all kinds of crazy things as humans, we can master obscene odds, and then we won't even be able to control our tongue because the tongue is so difficult to control. And so Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples, look for fruit, he's saying, look at what someone says. Look at, not look at what they say when they are well-prepared and when they're well-dressed and when they're in front of everyone. Maybe pay attention to what they say behind closed doors, when no one's watching, when no one's paying attention. What do they say at those moments with only a few people around? What are the kinds of things that they're talking about, that they're discussing, that they're laughing at, that they're finding interesting and being curious about? Is that filled with gossip and slander of other people? If that's the case, that's a fruit. It's a kind of thing that talks about the internal reality that's going on. What if that's not gossip and slander? What if that's uh, just, just being uh, spiteful of other people, judging them and, and pronouncing judgment on them in the presence of others? In that case, it's a kind of fruit that you bear. And it's in, violation, in a direct violation of one of the things that's mentioned in, in these uh, series of verses, that we ought not to judge other people harshly. We ought to be merciful kinds of people. And so pay attention to your words. And don't just pay attention to other people's words. Pay attention to your own words. Pay attention to the kinds of words that don't even come out of your mouth. Pay attention to the kind of words that you even think in your mind. Because that kind of level of thinking, that kind of thought process, is a really good indication of what you value. Because the words paint a picture about where the treasure is. And where the treasure is, out of the abundance of that treasure, that's where the words come from. And so someone who's a false teacher, someone who is a wolf in sheep's clothing, They can articulate wonderful truths for a limited period of time, but when you get them talking long enough and you get them articulating enough things, eventually their fabricated layer runs dry and out of the wellspring of their heart, from the treasure of their heart, you can get some very stunning reveals. You can get some very hard things that come out of their mouth. And we see this all the time because we live in the age of social media where we know what it is like for someone to project one thing to a public audience and yet have been privately recorded saying something behind closed doors. We know what that's like. And we know that people get into a lot of trouble for that. And I'm not saying that people should get in trouble for that kind of thing. What I'm saying is it just tells us about human nature. That someone will uh, tweet some things and publish, and when they go on the radio and when they go in front of the news, they'll say one thing and talk a certain way. But behind closed doors to the people who they're closest with, or sometimes when they think no one's listening, the kinds of things that they say are much different very different in fact, and out of the abundance of what they're saying, you're getting the true, real, raw reality of what's going on in their heart. 
It's a good fruit test. It's a good test. Not a perfect test, but it's a good test. And so then we're left with this question, which is, okay, if I'm recognizing the fruit and I'm realizing that it's not where I want it to be, how, how do I change the kind of fruit that gets produced? How, how do I make that switch? If I recognize that the fruit that I'm bearing is a problem, how do I make that kind of switch? And there's another question, which is, as a believer, how do you, how do you look at the fruit you're producing and recognize that there's some inconsistency there? That you're living in a certain way where you're producing kind of a mixed bag of fruit. You're producing some good, some bad, and you're just not really sure what that says about your internal reality. We'll explore first the what do you do if you are producing bad fruit and you've recognized that. And then we'll turn to the question of a believer who has kind of a, a mixed bag of fruit that they're producing. So first and foremost, I want to I say that there's another illustration in scripture that I want to turn to. And it's uh, John chapter 15. It's another fruit and vine illustration. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. And I'm just going to read those verses first and foremost, and we'll talk about all the implications there. He says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this is a different kind of metaphor, a different kind of illustration, and it's talking about a different arm of the reality of fruit. What Jesus is saying here by way of another illustration, a vine connected to, uh, to other vines connected to him, branches connected to the vine, what he's articulating is that if you want to bear fruit, if you recognize that the test is something that you're not doing so well at, and you want to bear a healthy kind of fruit, not rotten fruit, how do you get there? And he's saying, you need to abide in me. Because apart from me, fruit cannot be produced, certainly not healthy fruit. And if you want to produce much healthy fruit, you need to abide in Christ. It's talking about a different kind of reality. It's, the, it's, it's cool because it's the same kind of picture, but it's from a different angle. It's from the question of what if you're not producing good fruit and you want to be? You need to abide in Christ. Now, what does it mean fully to abide in Christ? Well, to abide in Christ has many implications, but there's, there's another cross-reference I want to look at that kind of flushes that out in detail, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 2 Corinthians 5, we find the key, if you will, to, to abiding in Christ. What does that look like? How, do, how does that get accomplished? So 2 Corinthians 5, I'm just going to start reading in verse 14 of that chapter. And remember, this is Paul writing from a, from a Christian standpoint. But he's also going to talk about how you go from not being in Christ to being in Christ. He's saying, first and foremost, for the love of Christ controls us. He's referring to the Christians he's with. He's saying the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, Christ, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised up. Now what Paul has in very short order just articulated is that Christ Jesus died in a substitutionary way for the world. He dies for fallen humanity. And he's saying that if fallen humanity dies to itself and is raised with Christ, 
That's a way to know that you are now in Christ and you can be controlled by him. He's saying Christ died for all so that those who live, meaning those who are no longer in their death, those who live no longer live to themselves, but they live to him for whom their sake died and was raised. So he's saying that if you want to enter the place where you are in Christ, where you can remain in him, where you can produce fruit, you need to first and foremost die to your old self, die to your old nature, and come alive to Christ. Be born again, as he says in John chapter 3. And he continues on, he says, verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, when he mentions the ministry of reconciliation, pay attention to what he's going to say next. That doesn't mean we get better with one another. The ministry of reconciliation is this. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The ministry of reconciliation that Christians bear is to tell other people to be reconciled to God who they are not reconciled to. We are telling a dead world of its need for a savior and pointing them to the savior who they need reconciliation with. That's the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, what Paul has just said is the ministry of reconciliation is making disciples, advancing the gospel, proclaiming the good news of Christ Jesus. Because in that ministry, in telling someone to be reconciled to God, what do they need to do to be reconciled to God? They need to go to a place where God no longer counts their trespasses against them. Well, how is that possible? Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ stands in the place of sinners and takes on sin. God makes Jesus to be sin even though Jesus did not know any sin. And in putting the sin on Jesus, he is able to look past the sins of you. He doesn't count the trespass against you. He counts it on Jesus. He punishes it in Jesus. And then when Jesus takes on the sin, we become the righteousness of God. Well, how's that possible? Because not only does Jesus take our sin on him, he also gives us his righteousness. And in that exchange, in that trade-off, What's happening is justice is being done on Jesus Christ so that God is no longer a non-just God, but also that we are getting the righteousness of Christ through the clothing of Jesus' righteousness. There's a trade happening. And in that trade, people, lost people, dead people are being reconciled to God. Now remember what I introduced this, these verses as is how, if you see bad fruit being produced in your life, do you become the kind of person who starts producing good fruit? If you recognize how you failed the test, how do you produce good fruit? Be reconciled to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be clothed in his righteousness. And all of these things lead to what? In Christ, we are a new creation. Verse 17. And if a new creation, then a new kind of tree, which produces new kind of fruit. Fruit that is indicative of the new nature inside. Remember, we said the fruit isn't so much about what is being produced. It's about the internal reality of the tree. Thorns don't produce grapes. Brambles don't produce figs. And in that reality, we know it's not a fruit problem. It's a nature problem. 
because by nature, all of us are trees that bear very bad fruit. And so it's not so much that we need different fruit coming off of our branches as, as much as we need to be a totally new kind of creation. That's the only way to produce the kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about. He's not telling us to augment the fruit that's coming out of us. He's saying you need a new nature. You need to be born again. You need to be a new creation. And if a new creation, then a creation that can bear much fruit because now you're in Christ. And if you remain in him, he will, through you, bear much fruit. Not because you're doing it, because he's doing it. And I think that's very important for us to stand because, remember, the fruit is not what saves. The fruit is an indication of the salvation that took place. And there's a difference between saying fruit saves us, the kind of fruit we produce is what saves us, and saying that the fruit is an indication of what's already happened. And the difference is in saying that there's a difference between good works that are necessary and good works that are meritorious. And those are theological terms that basically mean good works that are meritorious are understood to be works that we produce that earn us or merit us salvation. They attain for us something we previously did not have. Whereas what Jesus is saying here is that there is works that are necessary, good works that are necessary, but not meritorious. Meaning the, the works are a production of the salvation having taken place, not a cause of the salvation that took place. The works don't earn or cause salvation to happen. The works are a byproduct of salvation having occurred. Now at this point I want to stress, when, when Protestants start talking about good works, we run into a very quick error, and that is this. We say that, you know, good works are nice, fruit bearing is very nice, but it is not necessary for salvation. And in that we make a very large mistake. Because as soon as we say that, what we have just said is that this test that Jesus provides is actually not a good test. What we're saying is it's not necessary to bear fruit. It's not necessary to indicate that you have a new nature because you have a new nature. But if you had a new nature, wouldn't you produce fruit in keeping with that nature? Wouldn't the fruit be necessary because it testifies to the truth of the nature that you now carry? If you're a new creation, you would bear a new kind of fruit. And that new kind of fruit would be evidence to the fact that you are in fact a new, creature, a, a new, a new creation. This is where we get it wrong because there are so many times where we look at people who live in carnality, live in a licentious lifestyle, but profess Christ. And we say that, you know, they're not bearing much fruit right now, but they don't really need to. They profess Christ. They're, they're entrusting him for salvation. And so the works are not important, but the works are. They're a wonderful indication of what's actually happening on the inside. They're a wonderful indication of what's actually true about a person. First uh, John says it this way, that if we know that he is righteous, we can be sure that those who practice righteousness are in him. The reverse is also true. If we know that he is righteous, those who walk in unrighteousness are not in him. Those who have a lifestyle of, of flourishing that is not in Christ, where they can enjoy all the sensuality of the world, those are not people who are in Christ. People who walk in darkness have no part with the light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all whatsoever, not even a little bit. So if God is light, people who walk in darkness are not with God. And what that is telling us is that the fruit that we bear is very necessary. It's very important to tell us about what's actually going on on the inside. Even the thief on the cross, deathbed conversion, bears fruit and defends Christ, saying that Christ is righteous, we are not. He still bears a kind of fruit. And so often we look at that as an example of someone who didn't need to bear fruit. But he confessed. He confessed something wonderful, which is a production value of what actually happened on the inside. 
And so when we look at all these things, we're putting these things together, there's another thing that comes out of this, which is, okay, if, what if I am a Christian and I've produced some good fruit and some bad fruit? And I've been a Christian for some time and I'm still producing more bad fruit than I would like to admit. Well, you're not alone. Every Christian has this same internal wrestling with the kind of growing in holiness that we all feel. It's the growing pains of going from death to life, from, from uh, dead in our trespasses and sins to being made alive in Christ. That new creation requires the constant putting off of the old nature and the constant believing in and entrusting ourselves to Christ. And the constant enduring or abiding in Christ is a kind of fruit as well. Now what this means is as we are living our Christian life and we are producing fruit, we are, we are confessing things, we are saying things with our mouth, we're living in a certain kind of way, we might bear uh, good fruit initially. You know, we're riding the high of an initial profession of faith and there might be a, a slide for a little while. And then we might go up again and then slide down. But if you're looking at the short term, you're always going to get varying results. One of the things they'll teach you about looking at, at evidence, at data, is you need to usually look over the long-term course of events. And that's what is true about a Christian life as well. You need to look not at month-to-month, year-to-year. You need to look at the long-term scope of someone growing in holiness. Because when you look at that timeline, that timetable, Christians consistently bear good fruit and stop bearing bad fruit. That's consistently true over the long term. Now that doesn't mean that Christians never have difficulty living in holiness or walking in Christ. It just means that as they grow in holiness, they grow in the amount of fruit that they're actually able to produce. And they decrease the old, bad, rotten fruit that they used to produce. That's true of every single Christian everywhere. Now there might be times in your life even where you have difficulty walking in righteousness, walking in the light. That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. What that means is that you need to once again abide in Christ and he in you and start producing fruit again. Because that production of fruit is a good indication of what's actually going on. And I think that if we're not careful about this, we can become very self-condemning about our lives. And we can look at a, a wonderful season of great victory over sin and then two weeks of, of terrible life. And we can look at that and we can say, I must never have been saved. Christ Jesus must never have made me alive in him. And that's a bad conclusion to run to. What that should tell you is that you can't keep walking in this path because if you can keep walking in this path, it's evidence of the fact that there is no light in you, that you're still in darkness. But if, you, if you're able to pull yourself out of that path, it's not you pulling yourself out, it's the Holy Spirit at work in you causing you to be alive in Christ, producing once again good fruit. Because the only way to produce that kind of fruit is to abide in Christ. And that is what Paul exhorts people to do. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that is true for all of us, that salvation, the, the fruit of us being in Christ, one of them is enduring till the end, making it all the way to the finish line. Because he who has begun a good work in you will bring it about to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's a guarantee we have from God. So one of the fruits that we can look to in our life is simply endurance, simply faithfulness, simply walking step by step, day by day, under obedience, under growing in holiness, under continually better professions of faith. Admittedly, never perfect. We will never understand the full depth of theology, but increasingly, we're growing in that. We're growing in our life being conformed to the image of Christ. Those are all indications of us bearing fruit. Now, when I put all these things together, I just want you to once again zoom back out and look at these verses and ask the question, what is it that Jesus is driving home as he's talking around these ideas? As he's talking around these things, what's he getting at? 
First and foremost, remember he told us about how we ought to be, what kind of fruit we ought to bear. And then he talks about the danger of being someone who demands that kind of thing from somebody else and not from ourselves. And then here in these verses, he starts landing on the need for individuals to actually hold themselves to a standard. For Christians to actually walk in a way where they can say, there's enough evidence to convict me of being a Christian. If I was held on trial and I was put to a jury and they were bringing forth all the evidence of my life, there should be enough to convict me without any reasonable doubt. They should be able to convict me full stop. And if there's not that in your life, there's not enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian, then that might be an indication that you're not a Christian. Not a perfect indication, but a good indication. Not a perfect test, but a good test. And so as Christians, we need to take very close consideration of our own lives. But it's not just us and ourselves. We're not doing this thing alone. We're also called to be part of a body. And being part of a body means that we don't just demand this of ourselves. We also submit ourselves to other people with good counsel who can lead us rightly. The danger of being led by bad people is that blind people are leading blind people into blindness. But what about if you have good discipleship, good people who can see into you in a way that you can't even see in your own life, and they're counseling you, they're pointing out things in your life, they're holding you accountable to this standard. When that happens, there's a much better, more consistent growth over the course of a Christian's life. In fact, in the New Testament, it's hard to find individual isolated Christians. You just won't see it happening. Christians exist always in community, in in a communal sense where they're always walking through this life with one another. Titus says it's so integral that the old women are teaching the younger women, the, the children are being taught by the community of the church. Everyone is growing together as a body in holiness. And so this, this Christian life is not something we live on our own. These things are things we examine ourselves with, but then we also submit ourselves to accountability with one another so that we can be sure that we are bearing fruit as Christ commands us to. And I think that's something in the West we really do miss is the need for other people to speak into our lives. We're very quick to pick up bad influences and isolate ourselves from good ones. And so we should be willing to submit ourselves to good influence. It's gonna be uncomfortable. It often is very uncomfortable. But if this is something you're committed to, you resolve that you wanna bear good fruit and you wanna exercise every ounce of old nature out of you. You need other people looking. You need other people getting insight into your life because other people who are good disciples of Jesus will do a very good job at this. They will help you to prune yourself and grow in holiness by the power of the Spirit so that you can be found without frustration, without shame on the day of the Lord's return. That you have no fear or no need to worry because other people have been walking this thing out with you. It's a wonderful safeguard for our lives. And so with that, I want to close and just ask you to consider these things, not as something you've heard uh, a lot of times before, and you're used to the language of fruit. Consider these things from a new gaze, from a new lens. Not because there's new teaching here, it's the same old thing that you've probably heard a lot of times before. The point is this, that when we become desensitized to being, being aware to our own life and aware to the kind of fruit we produce, that's when we're in trouble. That's when we're in danger of falling into sin. That's when we're in danger of abandoning the faith, when we become cold to these wonderful truths. We should be convicted by this, maybe encouraged by this, by the kind of fruit we've been producing. And ultimately, we should be thankful to God that he loves us so much that he would give us indications of how we can live in a more Christ-like way. That's a wonderful blessing because he's not only just told us that he loves us, he's also told us how we can be obedient to reciprocate that love back to him. That's a wonderful blessing. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for your words today. Lord, you are so good to consistently reveal your character to us in a way that we often can be callous to, in a way that we often have a hard time understanding. Lord, would you give us patience to sit in your word and submit to it? Lord, submitting to your word requires a a miraculous gift from you. It requires a new heart, a new spirit, a new creation within us. Lord, we pray that that would be something you are daily at work in in our lives. That you would bring us about and conform us to the image of Christ so that we can be found as those who are saints, part of the bride, part of the body. And Lord, for those of us who are not there, would you convict us by your spirit? Drive us on our knees before you so we may cry out to you in desperation so you can make us new in your son. God, we ask all these things knowing that you are faithful and just, And we ask them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.